back when we were building the school back up again, there were three factors that really made it happen, I think. Tom Salubi, the Metro, and Father Dooley. The three of them put Gonzaga back on the map and made it possible for us to start a steep incline in growth of the school. Welcome to episode 18 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86. Probably recognize that voice from Dr. Joseph Changalini, one of the Renaissance men who guided Gonzaga during a period of rebirth after the recommitment of the Jesuits to stay on I Street in the mid-1970s. The fruits of those decisions were starting to show in the late 70s and the early 1980s when Dr. Joseph Changalini first arrived on I Street. Now, Joe, tell us a little bit about your educational background before that, because you had already been teaching at a Jesuit high school. At Loyola High School in Baltimore for four years as a teacher uh, right after I got out of college and then went up to Boston to do a graduate degree in counseling and didn't have a job. So during spring break, it was 77 or 78, I went down to D.C. to visit my mentor, Father Davis. He said, well, why don't you go down to Gonzaga and see if they have any openings? I did that and without an appointment, walked into the headmaster's office. And at that time, it was Father uh, Jim Stager. The headmaster's office was in the main corridor there by the catwalk. Mrs. Bell, terrific person at Gonzaga. Oh, yeah. She took one look at me and she said, I'm sorry, Father Steger's busy. He couldn't possibly see you now. Fortunately, Father Steger, his office door was open and, and he heard my name. And that previous summer, I'd given a workshop at a Jesuit conference on running community service programs. So he came out and very politely interrupted and said, uh, no, I'd like to see Joe. So I walked in and had an interview and he offered me a job. And that's how it started. Joe, do you ever reflect on those little tiny threads in the tapestries of our lives that are so thin, but they connect us to things and how it could have easily just gone a different way? Yeah. If he's on a phone call and doesn't overhear your name. Yep, that's right. That's That's, exactly right. I like to call them the tiny threads. Others may call it the Holy Spirit, but either way, it's such a cool story. And by the way, Opal constantly teases me because she she insists that when I arrived, I had sandals and shorts and a t-shirt on. I don't remember it that way at all. So she just <laughs> saw me as some you know random person coming in off the street looking for a job. And she wasn't about to let anybody walk into Gonzaga that didn't meet her approval. And I speak with Opal, you know, a couple of times a year, and she'll remind me of that story. Oh, that's wonderful. So many people would be greeted with smiles from her over the years. Uh, just the second you said her name, I just yeah. I, lit, I lit up inside thinking about her. And that's what this is really about. It's about celebrating the people who got <clears throat> in Zaga to where we are today. So let's start with Father Dooley. What, what do you remember about your encounters with him? Because he was special. No doubt. Uh, and I think of uh, Father Dooley very frequently, especially in this past year of trying to uh, run a school. He's been a uh, constant inspiration for me. Miss him terribly. You know, he's a man of enormous intellect, enormous heart and generosity, but uh, strong, but also kind of uh, frail in some ways. The job wore him out. You know, he, I think what got him through was his belief in the school and his love for everybody in the school and for giving a Jesuit education to as many young men as possible. But uh, it, it, was, it was a tough time. You know, he found a way to keep the bills uh, being paid. Uh, you know, the school was in really rough shape back in the late, mid and late 70s. And there were times when 
Uh, I'm, I'm sure he was worried about even making payroll. Our numbers had dropped. Um, I don't know if the, my memory is exact, but we were probably down to about 350, certainly under 400 kids at that point. So he managed to secure some loans for the school. And there's a story I remember him telling that the banks were turning him down. And then he went to a banker who happened to be a kid who got kicked out of Gonzaga. Don't remember his name right now. Maybe it'll come back later. But this one banker was, uh, who had been expelled was so grateful for the work uh, and the time that he had at Gonzaga that he gave a loan to the school. And it was that loan that kept the doors open. Bernie had this way of walking into a crowd and everybody wanted to meet him and say hi to him. He's also a really gifted speaker. I remember one, I think it may have been the graduation mask, and I was standing in the back of the church. His homily was something like this. You're here now with your sons who are graduating. Do you remember when you carried your son into a church like this in your arms and up to the baptismal font and had him baptized? And he managed to weave the story about parents raising their their sons and then turning them over to Gonzaga. You know, it, it was one of those talks where you could hear a pin drop in St. Al's, but also it was very, very moving. And he had that tremendous capacity to connect with people in a very deep and authentic way. Yeah, Father Dooley definitely had the touch. There's no doubt about that. Let's talk about the advent of the Metro in the late 1970s as it continued to spoke out into the suburbs. You had already figured out some of the demographic trends that were happening in the local parishes, and you were going to fish where the fish were in terms of the boys that were available to attend Gonzaga. Right. We started to uh, reach out to Northern Virginia and uh, up into Frederick, Maryland, and fortunately had some really um, important ninth graders enroll. There was one eighth grader at a church in Northern Virginia. And I believe his name was Michael Callahan. And uh, his mother was a teacher at the, uh, the school where he was enrolled. And he was a terrific athlete, a stellar student. And when he decided to come to Gonzaga, it really started a, uh, a trend in his school. And then that spread uh, to other schools. And suddenly we were getting many more applications from Northern Virginia. And with the advent of the subway, it made it you know, incredibly easier to get into Gonzaga. And that was one of the great benefits of staying there on I Street, that the subway station was so close. And the same thing happened out in the, you know, the farther reaches of, of Maryland. I remember specifically with my graduating class in 1986, we had a lot of guys who traveled a long way just to get to school every day. And they were incredible students as well as athletes. Yeah, you know, there were guys who came in like uh, Scott Gilley and Michael Flanagan and Mike Stanton and Chris Coster. You know, they were all really important to the revitalization of the school. They were not only uh, great soccer players and basketball players, but really good students. That helped turn things around in a significant way. So I'll tell you another story about Scott Gilley. I was the admissions director when he applied as an eighth grader. The headmaster at that time was Father Callan. We were over-enrolled in the ninth grade, and he said, you may not under any conditions take another student in the school. Scott and his parents were late applicants, and I met him and said, yeah, he, he belongs here. So I admitted him. And um, Father Callan eventually realized that I took an extra guy, but it was too late by then. 
but, you know, a guy like Scott wound up soccer and basketball star. He went on to Harvard to uh, be the captain of the basketball team there. And, and, and as a matter of fact, his three daughters are here at, at Sacred Heart. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, along with uh, five or six other Gonzaga dads who have their kids here. We have currently 13 daughters in the school of uh, Gonzaga uh, alumni. Let's get everyone up to speed of where you are. You're the head of school at the Convent of the Sacred Heart on 91st Street in New York. I left Gonzaga to become head of uh, the Sacred Heart School in Atherton, California, and I was there for seven years. Uh, And that's a co-ed school in middle Silicon Valley, Uh, 64-acre campus, a little bit different from Gonzaga. And uh, (laughs) as I said, co-ed and came here at 14 years ago now. Uh, We're on the Upper East Side, and as I said, it's an all-girls school. Going back to that February 1st, 1980 win over DeMatha with Tom Sluby's team, then you have Mark Gowan being able to resurrect the football program. After two years off from league play, Gonzaga ends up beating St. John's in 1980. Those things mattered. That gave all those 6th and 7th graders who were thinking about where to go to school a little jolt of confidence when they decided to choose Gonzaga. It's hard to attract kids to a school if there's nothing there to attract them to. But once you start building up a school, it all starts to, to move in, that, in the right direction. Without the success of the 1980 basketball team led by Tom Sluby, do we even get to a 1986 title? Yeah, there were, there were some terrific athletes who came through the school. Um, guys like Mark Tillman and Perry Carter. I still remember the first time I met Perry. He, he, was, a, he was a big eighth grader, and he was seated uh, in Mrs. Bell's office again. And I walked in, and I introduced myself, and he stood up, and he kept, just kept going up. You know, I had to look up and shake his hand. Uh, and it was so important, uh, you know, to the health of the school to have a varied and strong athletic and extracurricular program. You know, the school always enjoyed tremendous success in the theater and in music when Mr. Flannery, Chris Flannery came on board, he created that whole program. There was nothing when he started. No, so having a strong academic and extracurricular program made it fairly easy to promote the school. There was something for every student, you know, in the school. And, And Bernie was a great believer in a strong athletic program and strong alumni ties. So now, he was able to take care of that kind of outside work of the school while, you know, people internally took care of all of the, you know, making sure the school was run in the, in the correct way. You know, you mentioned Mark Allen and his impact on that. And Joe Kozik was still there and still active. And, um, you know, and great teachers came on board like Joe Jackson and Al Maddox and Helen Free and Al Etoile. And, you know, we had a great core and the Howe brothers. And the problem is once you start naming names, you might leave someone off the list. So apologies. But there was a group of people there who just refused to give in and, you know, made the school work. Kevin White was another great example of that. Dick Myers. And, you know, you can go on Bill Wilson. Yeah. Was the Alumni Association kind of like this sleeping giant that was just waiting for any kind of success athletically to be able to rise up and say, okay, what do you need? (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it was. It was a very powerful force, but not always a positive force either. I mean, you know, the, one of the, the reasons we had to cancel the Georgetown Prep Gonzaga football series for a long time was behavior that 
wasn't doing either school very, very well. But once we got past that, you know, there was a very important force in bringing back alumni to the school. And, you know, Danny Costello often told me at that time, you got to bring in more athletes. You got to bring in more athletes. I think he even admits that we were pretty strong throughout that whole time period. One of the special things Gonzaga had until he passed away in May of 1982 was Father Horace McKenna doing his ministry right there. And that was one of the benefits of the geography of Gonzaga, where you could do impactful community service, a little bit different than campuses like you know, Loyola in Baltimore or Georgetown Prep, other Jesuit schools that just didn't have the benefits of the geography that Gonzaga had. With the two schools you mentioned, their geography demanded a kind of different response. Gonzaga's position was unique, you know, being right in the middle of D.C. You know, the challenges of creating a just society were there in front of you every day. You, You know, it was not living in a bubble by any means. And Father McKenna was an inspiration to all of us. Um, You know, I still see in my mind's eye him standing in the pulpit at St. Al's talking to to us one day. And he used his hands and he said, you know, I want you to imagine that each of you is a finger of God in the world trying to make the world a better place. But he said it with such uh, kind of humility and and force. I, I still remember him standing there and saying that. And at that time, too, you know, the neighborhood was pretty rough. I remember when I was master once um, walking into Mr. Michael Packenham's physics room, his classroom looked right out on the street. And a couple of the guys in class were staring out the window and there was a a drug transaction and uh, some other activities going on. And, you know, so that that area at that time was was pretty, you know, pretty rough. And the school rose to the challenge of trying to help people who live, who are our neighbors. As someone who witnessed the campus footprint grow during your time there on I Street, was there one building or one purchase or one deal that sticks out in your mind, Joe, This as one that was really important for the school? Right. Well, that building um, across from the school, the big um, office building, I think it was Father Dooley who negotiated that contract, the land lease on that. The school owned a tiny little piece of land between the sidewalk on North Capitol, maybe another 50 or 60 feet in. Some developer came in and wanted to buy that whole piece of property, but needed us to sell that that little piece of land for this to work. And Bernie made that happen. And then I think it was under Father Novotny that the school purchased some property across uh, on the other side of the school. Those were all key investments. It helped secure the financial future of the school, but it sent an important signal that the school was determined to stay. You know, and uh, it's a it's an important part of a school's vitality to be able to to grow and expand. That way, people have confidence in the program and will entrust their kids to the school. Now, Joe, you were there in 1994 and for the next few years after as Father Alan Novotny took the place of Father Bernard Dooley as president of Gonzaga. Those were some pretty big shoes to fill. Uh, Father Novotny was more than up to the task. He was brilliant, terrific writer, and very forceful personality, too. Had to confront problems, he confronted them head on, and took on the construction projects that the school now enjoys. I remember, Alan, we're actually fellow students from Loyola High School. Uh, Alan was a year behind me. No kidding. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and also Father Clifford. Tom Clifford, who many people will remember. I did was, I did not realize that you guys all knew each other. Yeah. 
Father Clifford and also Father Jack Dennis, who was two years behind us. So there were four of us who wound up at uh, Gonzaga pretty much at the same time and lots of strong and long memories there. The one thing I will always remember about Father Novotny is his smile and, and he loved to ride bikes and I'm a cyclist. So I love that about him. Riding his bike and planting plants around the campus. So having both of those guys, Dooley and Novotny back to back leading the school was pretty amazing. They were both very energetic, but different styles, yeah. you know, and, uh, uh, and, and both uh, very uh, indomitable spirits. That's the best way I can describe both of them. Was there anything that Father Novotny did, maybe the way he approached problem solving that, you, that stuck with you, that maybe even you tried to emulate? I just remember his ability to reflect and then to reframe a problem in a, uh, in a way that made it workable. And he was very clear. He, you know, he was very concise in his thinking. So he always got to the core of an issue. And uh, that, that's been a great influence. I also love, uh, you know, what he said that when you have a construction project going on, the shortest distance between any two points is through a construction project. And I think he's right on target with that. I think all of us may have to think about that for a second, but in many ways for a school, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, the uh, construction, the remodeling of uh, Cantwell Hall and yeah, they were all Allen's projects. How shocking was it for you when you heard the news in 2010 that he had died so suddenly? I mean, oh, it was a terrible shock. You know, he was seemed healthy, and it was, a, it was a great shock for all of us. And loss, tremendous loss. Joe, you mentioned that you were Jesuit educated. You spent 21 years at Gonzaga. You've, you've done even more in education with Convent of the Sacred Heart over the uh, last couple decades. You're on the board of trustees of Gonzaga now. Is there a common through line that you see in the Jesuit education style that is so appealing and is one of the reasons why Gonzaga's lasted for 200 plus years? Um, the strand that I, I think goes throughout all is the, the Jesuit mission of we're all trying to find our way back to God and the school is there to help us do that. And it does that by developing intellectual talents, developing a sense of service developing a sense of personal responsibility. And there's an authenticity and almost a purity to that view that keeps institutions like Gonzaga going and thriving. And one of the other areas that I believe really grew during the 80s and during that renaissance was the Kairos program. Your predecessor as headmaster, Father Callan, uh, tasked a team to get that program launched in the mid-80s, and it continues to this day. It's become one of the biggest things in Jesuit education across the country that people remember is the Kairos program. And as you just said, it's not only having a great academic program, a great uh, athletic program, but a spiritual program that gives a sense of meaning. And, and that might also be the other important thread that, you know, the school emphasizes the need to create meaning out of your life. Uh, the nuns here uh, in the RSCJ tradition would always say that the schools weren't founded to get you to Harvard. They were founded to get you into heaven. And I think it's the same you know, kind of attitude with uh, the Jesuits. Uh, I mean, ultimately, we were there to be souls who returned to God who loved us. Now, you mentioned the nuns, the Convent of the Sacred Heart School is where you're at now. There's a Jesuit connection there. Can you explain for everybody? So the RSCJ, Religious of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, were founded by a French nun who was educated by her brother, who was educated by the Jesuits. 
So there was a direct uh, connection. So the spirituality of the RSCJ and the Jesuits is very, very close and very, very uh, compatible. Joe, you've spent a lot of time in education in leadership. If there's someone listening to this podcast right now, is there something that you learned along the way that you hope the next generation of administrators pick up and continue to live out in how they treat people? You know, I think the idea of presuming the best in the actions of others is probably the best advice. Uh, And it's really hard to practice that. And the other, you know, kind of dictum, as they used to say, of, of life in a Jesuit institution is, you know, do what you're doing. Pay attention to what you're doing. If you do the right thing, you know, it, it's going to work out. So I'd say they're, they're the two main things. And I try to instill that, you know, in some way in all the talks I give here. Be kind. Do what you're supposed to be doing. You know, don't forget where you come from and who you are. You know, if you remember those two things, you're not only consistent with what the Jesuits have tried to instill in all of us, uh, you're consistent with all of the gospel values and way to lead a, uh, your life. Joe, thanks so much for your time and sharing your memories of that special time on I Street, that renaissance started in the late 1970s, went into the early 90s in the direction of Father Dooley and Father Novotny. You take care of yourself, okay? Will do. Oh, and I'm going to make sure I reach out to all the members of the class of 86 that you name-checked in this podcast so they get to hear your voice again too, okay? A big hearty hello to everyone. That puts the wraps on episode 18 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. Next week in episode 19, our special guests will be members of the class of 68, Paul Warren and Michael Dolan. Together, they put out the 2007 book of news clippings about Gonzaga called Echo Ever Proudly. You may have seen it in the bookstore. Paul and Michael will share their insight into that time 150 years ago when Gonzaga moved to I Street. Gonzaga was very successful where it was. It thrived and uh, they did it. They moved. The move was a complete disaster. The kids did not follow. So did we intend to have episode 19 be about the move to I Street? No, it just kind of worked out that way. Or is it the Holy Spirit? Either way, can't thank you enough for checking out the Echo Ever Proudly podcast every week. Keep shooting those emails our way. Love the feedback. Podcast at Gonzaga.org. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take an extra moment at the end to rate and review. A five-star rating and a written review helps the school with the algorithms. And be sure to share the Echo Ever Proudly podcast with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time, ad maorium dei gloriam. And hail Gonzaga. Martin.